0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor in the history of science at McMaster University and a funk musician. Uh, I am very pleased today to be joined by Nicola Rehani, who is a Royal Society University Research Fellow and Professor in Evolution and Behavior at University College London. She is leader of the Social Evolution and Behavior Lab at UCL, and her research focuses on the evolution of social behavior in human and non-human species. We are here today to talk about uh, The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World, which is the first book you have written, so congratulations on writing your first uh, major uh, trade book. Nicola Rehani, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hi, thank you so much for the nice introduction and for the invite as well. And yeah, it's a it's a nice moment to finally have finished and have it out there in the world.
0: Yeah, I'd love to start about the the mere fact of writing a book, which is a is a daunting uh, task for anyone, but especially when you are covering such a wide range of literature. About evolution and cooperation in a variety uh, of species, from the smallest molecular level to the biggest societal level. What uh, prompted you to write this book?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is, I guess, in some ways, I thought about it a bit like climbing a mountain. It's better to, like, just one step in front of the next and don't try to look too much at the summit because it's a really, really daunting thing. And with the scope of the book that, like you said, that I wrote, um, it was quite daunting at the beginning to think about what could I put in and what would I leave out. But essentially the book is about what cooperation is and it's about the role that cooperation plays in the human success story and that's very much the kind of story that I want to tell and that I want to give people. But it's also, um, it's not just about humans. It's also a book about all the other animals on Earth that cooperate in lots of different ways. So from things like suicidal ants to um, paternalistic burying beetles and from diligent cleaner fish to um, the wonderful pied babblers of the Kalahari Desert. And my aim in the book really is to showcase the enormous diversity of social behavior and of cooperation on earth and to give us a bit of an insight into what we as an enormously social species have in common with these other species that live a social life and also of course what it is that sets us apart.
0: Um. Yeah. No. That's that. That makes a lot of sense, and it's 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 quite the it's quite the achievement that you get through in the book. And I'm, I will say it's 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 wonderfully written and a and a absolute breeze to get through, even though there's a lot of um you know potentially complex uh, topics in here. You really treat them all in a kind of systematic and thorough way. Um, I, I guess from the from the level of of the book itself, what is the kind of Angle you were trying to go for, or what? What were you seeing that did not exist, maybe in the in the literature uh, that that you were trying to accomplish with this book uh, in particular?
1: So I think there is this sort of assumption, um, both sort of just among lay people, but also, as you say, like missing on the bookshelves in a way that we as a species are selfish, that we're self-interested, that we're individualistic. And that also, if you just take sort of a very narrow reading of even a, a Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, that what we would expect is um, things like nature, red in tooth and claw, survival of the fittest every individual for themselves and things like this and what i really want to show with the book or the story i want to tell is actually how important cooperation has been in creating life as we know it on earth and also in shaping our lives as humans Um, but the kind of deeper message in a way and maybe the one which is a sort of dark underbelly of the book in some sense is this idea that Yes, cooperation is probably far more prevalent and is, is in every sphere of our lives to an extent that perhaps we have overlooked or not appreciated, but also cooperation is at its heart a means by which entities compete and they are a means by which individuals or genes or cells improve their position in the world.
0: Hmm. So there's kind of this dual nature of cooperation, which is simultaneously this working together, but simul- you know at the same time, uh, you know I- improving ourselves and and getting ahead. And I guess that's the way you know the our, our bodies and our societies and and our families and everything uh, can happen at all is because we're working together in some capacity. Um, I'm you have had a really interesting uh, kind of research trajectory. Um, you've worked. Uh, as as you've mentioned, with animals, with humans, doing lab studies, doing field experiments, I wa- I'm wondering if you could speak about, yeah, your your educational journey and how you became interested in this subject and 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 then <laughs> becoming a professor of it and doing quite a lot of interesting research in in many different domains.
1: Yeah, sure. So. Um, yeah, I did take, I, I mean, I now work in a psychology department, but I took a pretty strange path to getting there. So mm-hmm. I trained originally as a, an evolutionary biologist. And in fact, for my PhD, I was doing really hardcore sort of like field biology, sort of traipsing around after these birds that I was studying, um, which are called Pied babblers, and they live in the Kalahari Desert. And they are a very, very social species. So um, the babblers live in family groups, usually between three and about 14 individuals in a group. And they're unusual in that within every group, just one male and one female breeds, and everybody else in the group is... Um, relegated to be a subordinate helper. So their role in the group is to help the dominant pair to breed. Um, So I worked on these birds for uh, three or four years. And then I took a sort of a different step and started working on a completely different species, which is a species of fish called the blue Street cleaner wrasse or the cleaner fish for short and they're also an interesting species to study if you're interested in cooperation because they cooperate with all the other fish that live on the reef by offering a parasite removal service to these other mm-hmm. fish that live on the reef and so the big two sort of um strands to my research in, in on non-humans have been research in family living species like babblers and some other species like mole rats and apostle birds and then also looking at species that collaborate with non-family members and in fact they collaborate with complete strangers and those are the cleaner fish and obviously we know that one of the things that makes humans sort of unique on earth is that we do both of those things so we collaborate intensely within our family units, but we also cooperate with people we don't know, people we might never meet, straight complete strangers. And so in some ways, these sort of different strands of the work that I've done on non-humans then dovetail together to help me understand the mechanisms that support cooperation in our own species and how they might be similar to what we see in other species and also where we might start to see points of difference. Mm.
0: I'm, I'm so curious what doing research on, yeah, the, the, the pied babblers and the cleaner fish, for instance, what are you actually doing? What does that, I mean, are you, are you, are you sitting there with a camera? Are you taking notes? Like what, what does that actual research uh, process look like?
1: So yeah, so they're quite different. Um, So with the babblers, they're just wild. We worked on wild birds, essentially, and they live, they're free ranging, they're completely wild. Uh, And a big part of the research on babblers, or sort of the prelude to the research actually, was getting the birds to become accustomed to our presence and not to be frightened of us. And so we spent quite a long time um habituating the birds which is a really slow process it's quite boring um you just have to basically sit really still not be scary uh, but eventually it's amazing because eventually the birds do stop being afraid of you and in fact we we were able to um eventually we actually trained the birds with a special whistle that we would walk around their territory and we would give our whistle and then they the whole group would come to us in exchange um for a mealworm each and we could you know they like better trained than my dog actually in some ways but um they yeah so they, they would come to us and then we could also what we could we trained them after a time to jump onto a balance that we had so that we could weigh them and see who was in good condition who's not in good condition and because we're able to get so close to them and these are birds that actually live most of their life on the ground They, they they can fly but they forage on the ground and they're pretty much on the ground all the time and because so because we could get close to them we could actually walk with the group and we could observe at really really close quarters all the different kinds of behaviors and social uh dilemmas and and skirmishes and all kinds of things like a soap opera in a way that play out in the course of these birds lives and so that research was really quite um observational and it really involved just spending a lot of time getting to know these birds and getting to kind of understand what their life entailed really
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's no, that's fascinating. I would, I mean, I don't know. Do people start acting like? Do, do, do the researchers start becoming like? I mean, you start getting yourself into the drama. You start absorbing their culture. I don't, I don't know. Or like you start. It's like when people start looking like their dogs. I don't know if you start then looking <laughs> like the birds. You start to study, but uh, <laughs> I
1: think you definitely <laughs> have a sense in which if something, you know, a lot of the time nothing happens because you know fundamentally their main thing they care about is foraging and getting food. So a lot of the time you just twiddling your thumbs and nothing's really happening but every now and then some major social event will happen in the group and it usually was a really like newsflash moment when you came back to the shared farmhouse like oh my god tomboy did you know he evicted this bird from the group or you know like so if something major happened it was always like a news item for us in our household at least
0: Oh, I love that. No, it's, it's amazing because, uh, I guess it's hard to, it's hard to remember unless you're immersed in it like that, that the rich drama, you know, of life is not just, you know, it's, it's hard enough getting outside of our own heads and realizing that everyone, every other human has a life as, you know, complex and interesting as yours, but then taking that one step further and realizing that, you know, birds and indeed all animals are living vast, like rich, uh, Social lives, um, but but I guess a, maybe a, a, a meta question about this kind of research is: wh- how, what can we learn uh, about ourselves by studying animals like this? One can imagine you saying a person saying, "Oh, this this type of research is certainly interesting." Uh, you know, birds do this, fish do this, but that's we are humans. We are, we are different, and so where where is the link? I mean, uh, you know, we are all Darwinians, but how how can we? What can we use about these animal species? How can that be helpful in making inferences about human cooperation or about the notion of, you know, being a social species in general?
1: I think one of the things that um, we learn by looking at other species is we kind of take ourselves off this pedestal of like thinking that we are, you know, unique in this respect or unique in that respect. Because the more you get to know other species, the more you start to see instances where, a behaviour which we might have once thought was, you know, really a a quintessentially human thing actually is seen in in quite distinct species that we never would have expected. And one case where that happened to me in my research was um, concerning teaching. So basically teaching is obviously something that as humans we're all familiar with and we tend to think of it as occurring in really sort of like formalised settings, You know, classroom, there's a teacher at the front, there's a a bunch of kids in the room, and it's institutionalized and it's formalized. And obviously, we don't see anything like that in other species. But that isn't to say that we don't see instances of active instruction that have evolved because of their ability to help another individual, a pupil, learn something. Uh, And that's exactly what we see in, um, in the babblers that i studied so um in the in the babblers we we see that being in the nest is a really dangerous time to be a babbler so Hmm. when their baby is in the nest there's a that if you're going to get eaten or killed by something there's a it's going to probably be while you're stuck in the nest because you're defenseless you're in one place you're kind of there's a chance that predators are going to find out where you are and so um Babblers have a really rich repertoire of um, strategies that they use to try to help the nestlings to survive this really dangerous period of their life. And one of these strategies is to is to teach the nestlings to associate a specific call that the birds only ever give when they're visiting the nest with food, with food delivery. So this call, we used to call it a purr call. It's like a guttural rolling sound. And when an adult bird arrives at the nest, when the nestlings are about nine days old, they start giving this call. uh, And and at first, the, the chicks don't know what it means. They don't respond to it. But after a few days, they start to learn in a sort of Pavlovian manner that, when I hear this noise, food mm. arrives quite quickly afterwards and they start to, resp- if you play back that call to them through a speaker, even if there's no adults at the nest, they will, the three chicks will sort of reach up out of the nest and you'll see all their heads poking out and lots of begging um, in anticipation of a food delivery. Um, and what we discovered is that not only do adults teach the chicks to associate this call with, the, with this specific meaning, like, this means that food is about to arrive. They actually then use this call to kind of, um, like like white lies in a way. So they use Mm. the call, even when they don't have any food to offer to the chicks, to encourage the chicks to follow them in situations where it would be dangerous to not follow. So for example, if there's a predator or if they need to go to the evening roost tree or something like that, they'll quite often give this call that the chicks think, hey, I've got food. And in fact, they haven't got food, but it encourages the chicks to follow them because they've learned that this, this association between the call and food. And in that way, the babblers teach their offspring something useful. They teach them this, the meaning of this call and, and help to keep them alive.
0: I'm curious. I, I remember reading about, you know, when E.O. Wilson first wrote the book Sociobiology and gave talks on the subject, talking about ants, what we can learn about, you know, social cooperative behavior from ants. He was like, People threw tomatoes at him and it was, you know, they called him, uh, I don't know, they called him nasty names because we are humans, you know, uh, chief of, you know, kings and queens of the animal kingdom. Um, do, do you think that that sense is still there or has, I don't know, the, the public at large or the research community more gotten used to this idea that – uh you know, no, no species is, you know, superior or inferior to any other. We are all just kind of doing our best in our own ecological niche and, you know, behaving in the way, using, using the tools that natural selection gave us to reproduce and socialize and survive. Uh,
1: I think that there is now an awareness that it's sort of, um, I think now that we, as a community, that the, the question of like, are humans unique is, is sort of seen as being somewhat an ironic question, although people do still continue to ask it. And it's clear that in some respects, we are unique. But I think if you look at the field as a whole, and even this sort of like now, you know, this sort of newfound self-awareness of like, we're just another species and we shouldn't be parochial about human abilities compared to the abilities of other species. I think it's perhaps almost like inevitable in some ways that our benchmarks for cognition and behavior our starting point for saying like here's an interesting thing where do we see it in in nature is always going to be in in our own species because it's just so hard for us to look to other species and be like Hey, that species is amazing at X. I wonder if humans are very good at that. I, I just don't think that's often the starting point for people. I think more often mm-hmm. the starting point is humans seem to be really good at doing this thing. What are the? Can any other species do it, or are we are we the only ones? And so, mm-hmm. I think there's kind of like quite a nuanced answer to that question in a way because I think there we have the self awareness, but in some ways, it's really hard for us to get away from that human bias because we are humans. And so hmm. it's, it's hard for us to not think about cognition and behavior in very human terms, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I certainly hold that bias myself. And to that point, would like to turn to humans and talk about some of the yeah, main forms of cooperation and and social group behavior that that we engage in, and I guess one that you speak about at length is uh, the family. Uh, and so, in human societies, you know, we we have a method of reproduction where two people need to pair up and have children and raise children, and many different people contribute to the the rearing. Uh, of those offspring and families tend to stick together and, and, and support their children. But this, uh, as you discuss, you know, this is not necessarily, you know, the, the, the uh, natural order of things. There are many different ways that species can kind of uh, propagate themselves and and reproduce, uh, but we do it in, in this way. So what is the reason uh, for the way that, well, first of all, is there one single definition of the human family uh, as an entity um and why if there is some you know human universal there why is it why is that the way uh that we've evolved to do things
1: so yes yeah, so i think this is a really interesting question and this obviously marks a point of difference between us and all of the other great apes is that Uh, if you take a chimpanzee for example a chimpanzee infant will be raised by its mother only and will have very very little involvement from uh, a father or from any other family member really and when we look at the situation in humans what we see is something really really different which is that many family members are involved in raising offspring and it isn't just the mother but it's also obviously the father although that varies the importance of paternal care and the involvement of fathers in the raising of offspring varies quite broadly across human societies but fathers do generally help to raise their offspring and but also we also have um, non-reproductive helpers in human societies a bit like the babblers that I um, described and those can be either the older children the older siblings that 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 are at home and that help to raise the their younger siblings but we also have permanently sterile physiological helpers um, that we call grandmothers and they are also a a helper morph if you like in human societies and have been hugely important in the evolution of human society Um, and I think that one thing that is sort of Really easy to overlook, in particular for people who are living, who are listening to this, who might be living in Western industrialized societies Mm -hmm. that emphasise the kind of nuclear family as the as the the de facto organisation or the 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 way that family is organised, is that the nuclear family is a massive outlier. Both, if we can think about either in broad cross-cultural perspective, but also if we look back at the history of our species over time, the nuclear family is is an anomaly essentially and and how humans would have lived for most of our life on earth would have been in much bigger family groups where the emphasis on uh, parental care or the responsibility for parental care wasn't falling primarily to the mother, but was, 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 was done by many individuals and children were raised by many individuals within a family. And I think that's um, one of the things that I think in some ways, hopefully for some people who will read the book or listen to the podcast, there is a sort of, I find that an empowering realization as a mother myself that like, it's not only on me to kind of make sure that my children turn out okay, and that I'm their primary sort of source of emotional support and, and care. And like that, that that kind of is a bit of a Western cultural ideology rather than a mm. biological imperative.
0: Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a great deal of sense. And I've even, I, I felt that certainly among some of my friends as well, this, I, I have found as I, as I move into my, you know, late 20s, that my friends are coupling up, n- nuclearizing, as it were, so, you know, getting their own places, moving in together and starting these, you know, eventually starting families. And I know other people who are kind of living in a more uh, group together, you know, multi-story house, living all together in, in a kind of more collective way. And that kind of makes more intuitive sense to me. Uh this idea that you know why should just uh you know raising a child is a pretty serious endeavor um and the idea that you know only two people should be the immediate uh, caregivers doesn't doesn't strike me as making sense which which in in reading the book and you know learning about how weird so to speak western educated industrialized rich democratic societies are so different than you know the 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 th- tens of thousands of years of of human uh history where where we did it um where we did this differently, but I guess my 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 bigger question is why do humans, in particular, so in contrast to the to the the other apes you were describing, who uh, you know um, the, the the children are just raised by by the mother with little involvement from from other family members, why uh, why did we evolve this this mechanism where so many people uh, contribute to uh, you know helping us uh, grow?
1: well if we look at the environments in which early humans lived they were the best word to describe them in some way is difficult and so the environments that characterized the sort of formative periods of human evolution were really tough like it would have been hard to eke out an existence food was pretty hard to come by it was sparsely distributed in the environment there would have been a reasonable threat of predation um living on sort of open savannas with the full complement of megafauna and sort of giant versions of the some of the species that we we know about today and c- so humans needed one another to survive and the only reason we could survive in those environments is because we were c- so cooperative uh, and if you couple that with the um, the fact that human infants are also born quite sort of um underdeveloped is a, is one word to describe it mm. so for a, for a human to for a human to be born with the same sort of um physical and bodily ability as a as a chimpanzee they would have to probably be born around 18 months later than they actually are born but in fact there's an obvious sort of um there's a difficulty with that which is the the gap in the maternal pelvic uh floor or the the pelvic um the sorry i'm losing the word here but basically the 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 pelvic gap that the head of the infant has to fit through of the mother is limited and there's a, the, a human infant with a head of, that was larger than the head that they normally have at nine months old would mm-hmm. have a really hard time making its way out of this um, of this hole, essentially. And already at nine months old, it's already kind of hard enough. I can tell you from experience. So, <laughs> uh, so um, essentially, we give birth to these undercooked infants mm-hmm. that need in an environment where food is where food is hard to come by, where it's difficult to survive anyway, and where we where we actually need help in raising these infants into to into into childhood and beyond and so i think it's a real mix of things but basically i think it's this combination of inhabiting difficult environments needing a nutrient-rich diet a much more nutrient-rich diet than the other great apes eat usually and also having these really, really costly infants are three sort of key things that can help us to understand why we see such an emphasis on family life and cooperation in humans, in particular in the context of childcare, that we don't see in, say, chimpanzees or gorillas.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I, you're, you see those the footage of like those, I don't know, birds who emerge from the from a, from a shell. And they just kind of start, just start venturing out into the water. And it's like, wow, you just, you just knew what to do right away. And, and human babies are kind of slimy and, and confused and don't really, you know, don't really know what's going on for the first, uh, for the first year of life. And I guess, I guess what you're describing is like a trade-off between us having, you know, uh, big brains and and big bodies, but also being able to, uh, you know, mothers being able to give birth in, in a way that is actually, you know, safe and and uh and and doesn't doesn't you know break break the body um so no that's 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 really interesting and so we have these uh we have these uh family uh, structures as you've you've described actually one interesting piece of research that you alluded to uh, is about grandmothers in particular i'm wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about that in, uh specifically because you speak in the book uh, about the kind of evolutionary basis for menopause which is the uh, explanation for you know kind of this this helpful grandmother uh, hypothesis in in the family if you could speak a bit more about that
1: sure so menopause is a bit of an evolutionary puzzle because what we see when a woman hits menopause is that she is switching off her ability to reproduce and so in some ways you think she might be becoming an evolutionary dead end and obviously I'm not talking here I'm not I'm not implying that menopause is under is something that individuals choose to do or don't choose to do. But when we use language, we can use language like this to just kind of as a helpful shortcut for understanding evolutionary decisions um, that that get taken, that not psychological ones. So when we think about menopause, we might say, well, why would females ever agree? And I mean, agree in sort of scare (laughs) scare quotes here. Why would females ever agree to switch off their reproduction so long before they die because in doing that they kind of render themselves an evolutionary dead end and it would seem to be something that would be selected against not selected for Uh, and if we look at the um the number of follicles that human females have um of the human females are born with all the follicles that they'll ever have in situ and follicles develop into eggs and what we see uh with the store of follicles that human females have is that they decline at a pretty steady rate throughout life but when a woman hits the age of about uh, late 30s to early 40s that that steady decline suddenly drops off a cliff and the number of follicles drops quite markedly and at about the age of 50 females will undergo this physiological transition which is the menopause um where they no longer have enough follicles to sustain regular menstrual cycles and the question is well why does why does why does that follicle store drop off a cliff at that point because if it didn't do that you would in principle have enough of them the average female would have enough of them to continue breeding until she was in maybe her 60s or 70s so it's something that warrants an explanation it's something that happens uh, that we you know we can we can ask from an evolutionary perspective why it happens and to understand it it helps to understand some of the conflicts that might have been playing out between reproductive females in ancestral human societies so if we think if we go that kind of wind back the evolutionary clock and wind ourselves back to the time when humans were living in foraging societies and um, living in these extended family groups, um, our best guess about this period of time is that when females reached reproductive age, when they were ready to start reproducing, they tended to leave their home environment with their own family and their own relatives, and they would tend to disperse or move to live with the family of the male partner that they would be having children with. So that's uh, not, we don't know that for sure, but all our best evidence suggests that that is the case. And that's important for the following reasons. So you have the young females who are moving to live with their husband, and I use that term very loosely, wouldn't, there was no institution of marriage, obviously, but they're moving to live with their male partner and also the male partner's female relatives in that in a new location when you have multiple females that try to have babies at the same time if you already live in a difficult environment where food is scarce and it's hard enough to raise one offspring at a time let alone you know two or three you can get competition between females over who gets to breed and essentially here, the competition that we're interested in is competition between the younger females and their mothers-in-law, their the, the, the mother of their male partner. So if you think about this conflict, there's a, there's a conflict between the two females over who gets to breed. If they both breed all the children will suffer because there's not enough food. And so it's better if just one female breeds, but it's kind of a conflict about who's going to get to do that. And the way that conflict is resolved um, is due to what we call a relatedness asymmetry between those two females. And to put it very simply, the mother-in-law has a vested interest in any offspring that are produced by the younger female because she's related to them via her son. Whereas the younger female has no vested interest whatsoever in any offspring that are produced by the older female, because she's not related to, she won't be related to those offspring, not genetically. And that relatedness asymmetry actually weakens the mother-in-law's hand and it can Hmm. select for this physiological transition whereby The mother in law actually concedes in a way in the battle. She switches off her reproduction. She doesn't compete with the younger female. And she becomes, she has the menopause, she becomes a sterile individual. And at that point, she can still help to increase her fitness, by which I mean she can help to the chance of copies of her genes finding their way into subsequent generation. By helping to raise her grand offspring, the the grandchildren, and that 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 help and the help the way that that help benefits the younger generation, the grandchildren can actually select then for this increased lifespan that we see in humans, where females don't just undergo the menopause and then. Die, as you might expect, if there was, you know, if they really were an evolutionary dead end, there would be no evolutionary selection pressure to keep them alive beyond this point. But there is a selection pressure to keep them alive. And it's the it's to do with the benefits that can be accrued through helping to raise grandchildren.
0: Wow, yeah, that is fascinating bit of you know evolutionary thinking. It's like a puzzle that you you have to reason backwards from the current state of affairs to get back to kind of the 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 history that would have gotten us to this point. But I guess it's all premised on this idea that um you can propagate your own uh you know genetic. Uh, endowment, not just through having children of your own, but through supporting people who are related to you. And, uh, maybe you could say a bit about, uh, that kind of genes, gene level view of thinking about, um, yeah, uh, re- reproductive fitness and why, for instance, it's reproductively beneficial for someone to, you know, help raise their, their, their grandchild or even their niece or nephew, uh, even if that is not, you know, their direct, uh, progeny?
1: Sure. So this is an idea that was obviously really sort of championed by Richard Dawkins in when he wrote The Selfish Gene, but essentially to paraphrase what, you know, those ideas, a gene that's present in my body doesn't really care how it finds its way into the next generation. And all genes are selfish or self-interested, if you want a less loaded term, and, and in that they are driven to try to find their way into subsequent generations Um, but they don't really care how they do it and so a gene that's present in my body in principle can find its way into the next generation via my own offspring or what we call my personal fitness and my personal reproductive success but it can also find its way into subsequent generations via offspring that say my brother has or my sister has and and it can be sometimes under some evolutionary scenarios beneficial for individuals to actually pause or entirely switch off their own personal reproduction in order to focus on helping family members to produce offspring instead and and the most famous example of that would be where we see that sort of taken to the extreme, if you like, is in species of social insects like ants and bees, where you have some individuals that are born as sterile worker castes, whose only job is to serve the queen and help her to lay as many eggs as she possibly can and to raise those eggs and to make new offspring.
0: I noticed that the book cover at least my version of the book cover i don't know if this is the north american one versus the uk one is of bees are on the cover is that was that the rationale or do you have any do you have any say over what goes over on the uh, on the cover of the book
1: i think i could have vetoed it i mean i, I think the bees it, i do like the cover but in the beginning i, I was a bit like oh, i thought like okay bees it's like it seemed a bit obvious to me but yes. i think you know bees bees are like i don't know i think it's also a hard sell to kind of you know, put something like a mole rat on there because they're so ugly and it's not you know people aren't going to pick up a book with this animal <laughs> that looks like a penis with teeth on the front of it so <laughs> i think you know in a way these people like bees and you know it's fine basically
0: i don't know if that's necessarily true i think toothy penis cells uh i think uh, that's uh, i don't know it's it's intriguing anyway but uh but yeah. Uh, so I'd love if we can move now. We've been speaking about the family. We've been speaking about, uh, you know, genetic relationships. We, we spoke a lot about uh, other animal species. Uh, but now I'd love to turn to this idea of helping people, cooperation among people you are not related to, or indeed people you don't know. So, I mean, the, the question I have here is, why would a person ever help a stranger? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so it's a good question. And it's not, uh, this is kind of like, there's not just one answer to it. But, you know, obviously, this is something that humans do all the time. And it's a massively important part of our ecological success, you know, it's it's the thing that has helped us to scale up, not from just living in these small family groups to actually living in huge, large scale societies that many of us nowadays live in. Um, And I think, there are a number of things that humans have done and have changed about our interactions with other people that have helped this to happen. So one thing that humans seem to care about a lot is our reputation. And there's really good evidence that a concern for how you appear to other people is really important in predicting cooperative behavior and so there's one sort of big strand to the bow, if you like of why humans are cooperative um, another big reason why humans might cooperate with other individuals to whom they're not related is this theme of interdependence whereby we come to have a stake in one another's fitness and well-being and such that it kind of is in our interest to help these individuals and you know we see although I think we haven't quite realized it really at the moment but like the COVID situation has really emphasized how just how interdependent we really are on each other even with people we don't know and we might never have met um so yeah we have reputation interdependence um the threat of punishment is another big tool in that in that toolbox of scaling up cooperation to this larger scale that we see in humans and then finally another big tool if you like is our ability to devise what we call institutions which are basically just the shared norms and rules of interactions that we agree upon that form part of our culture that help us to engineer cooperation in situations where we might otherwise be stuck in a, in a sort of less cooperative, um, setting.
0: Hmm. Wow. I have a lot of questions <laughs> just, just about the things we were just discussing. Um, so maybe, uh, where to start? I'll start with this idea of reciprocity, which is, uh, you know, there's one, I guess intuitively, it makes sense that, you know, if you help other people, even if they're not related to you, then one day when you need help, uh, they might, you know, help you back. Um, But humans do quite a bit of that. You know, we help our neighbors and we help our friends, but we also help people who we might never even see, uh, you know, total strangers. We donate to charity to help people whose, you know, success or failure or health uh, will really have no measurable effect uh, on our own life success, except well, maybe it does reputationally or uh, something else. So I don't know. Maybe you could say a bit about yeah why why not just helping people we're not directly related to, but people we might never even see in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, re- reciprocity is kind of part of the story, but I think there's also cases where reciprocity can really undermine sort of cooperation and especially if you use reciprocity in the context of sort of important relationships Uh, for example if you go out with your friend and then you know you go for a beer and then your friend turns around and says oh hey by the way it's your turn to buy the beer today because I bought it last time we kind of that kind of strikes us as being a bit iffy because reciprocity is we don't expect reciprocity in that scenario and so there is this in one sense we can understand helping behavior in terms of um interdependence and that would help us to understand in particular helping behavior among say like friends and 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 known interaction partners but then you're right that we then also see in humans this uh tendency to help individuals that we don't even know that we've never met that we might never meet um and giving to charity is, yeah, like a really good example of that. And I think if we want to understand why people do that, there are two kinds of answer you can give to, to that why question. And it's important that um, we don't conflate them because often when people give evolutionary answers to that question, when they show how giving to charity or being pro social could be ultimately in the altruist's long-term interest sometimes you get accused of sort of taking the altruism out of altruism and you know people will say well I like to give to charity because I like giving to charity or because I'm a good person and things like this and so I just want to quickly dispel this idea that we're that there's a kind of conflict between those levels of explanation so um, when we ask why a person for example gives to charity we can we can give an answer which is what we call approximate level answer, which is concerned basically with the immediate motives or the psychological motives that underpin that helping behavior. Or we can give an ultimate level answer, which is more like the evolutionary answer that I just spoke about, understanding how helping behavior could ultimately have been favored by selection. And so if we just think about those proximate, the motivational answers for now, we know that when people help others for example by giving to charity it often feels really good to do that and so there are subjective reward mechanisms in the brain and you can study them if you put people in an fmri scanner and have them do nice things for other people you see that all these reward centers that are associated with other rewarding things like having sex and eating cake and recreational drugs those same reward centers are also active when we are given the chance to behave pro-socially. And there's a whole suite of really cool studies showing that being helpful is um, often a purely psychologically altruistic thing that's done out of a concern for the beneficiary and that is um, subjectively rewarding to do. So if we park those explanations for a minute and say, okay, yes, we understand that people help because they care about the beneficiary. They, it feels good to help. People can be genuinely psychologically altruistic, but we can also then say, okay, fine. Why have we got a brain that is wired in a way that makes us enjoy doing something that actually on the face of it is costly? Why do, why do we have a brain that makes us enjoy giving away resources to people that we've never met and that we might never meet and where there's no potential for reciprocity and where we're not interdependent. And so then we're starting to get into the realm of these evolutionary level answers as to why it Mm -hmm. might ever be good or beneficial for an individual to be pro-social or to appear to be pro-social. And one main reason why that can be the case is because there are obviously reputation benefits that go hand in hand with appearing to be pro-social and when individuals gain these reputation benefits they quite often um, benefit from getting access to better partners getting better social network positions being more likely to be helped themselves when they're in need of help in at some point in the future. And so there are a whole host of reasons why gaining a reputation as being a pro-social individual could yield downstream benefits to the person. But I just really want to emphasize that what we're not saying is that the only reason people do things is because they're expecting reputation benefits because you you those quite often the proximate reason you do something and the reason why it might have an evolutionary advantage are completely um, separated from one another. And you might not ever be aware of the evolutionary advantage of why you do one thing or another.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's, I mean, I guess there's a similarity to, you know, eating sugary foods. Like the reason you do it is because it tastes good. But the, re- the real reason, you know, the reason that it tastes good is because, you know, in some ancestral environment, there was not access to a lot of sugary food. So, you know, it, we evolved a mechanism where, you know, apples or whatever tasted extra good because, uh, exactly. you know, yeah. be- be- and because in fact that that's an example
1: where now it's like a mismatch, actually, between, right. you right. know, the availability of sugary foods is now... You know, too much in a way, but we have this mechanism that makes us still think it's really delicious and maybe eat too much of it sometimes.
0: Yeah, um, another uh, factor that you brought up, uh, in addition to this idea of yeah, reputation, reciprocity, um, all these kinds of altruism questions, is this idea of institutions. Humans are able to cooperate uh, and form governments and build pyramids. And create, you know, these kind of supervening structures over society uh, and pass on norms to the next generation in a way that, frankly, I don't know, I find, uh, if I think about it too much, uh, I, 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 get, I get emotional about it. It's like, yeah. you know, the fact that we can pass on these traditions and form these institutions, even the institution of science itself, uh, you know, has its own uh, kind of culture that, that gets passed on, uh, through the, through the generations. Yeah. I'm wondering, is this a, a phenomenon that is, that is unique to humans, this level of like, uh, collective cooperative, I don't know, um, norms and, and traditions that get passed on. Uh, and, and if so, why, you know, what, what has been the advantage of this incredible capacity for institution building?
1: So sorry, you cu- you are cutting out a little bit. But, but was your question basically why? What is the advantage of being able to devise and enforce institutions?
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, my my first question was: Is this a uniquely human uh, capability? Oh, right, okay. And then and then secondarily, what is the what was the evolutionary you know cause of this? If so,
1: yeah. I mean, I think you're right that it is um, a unique an evolutionarily sort of a one-off thing it's only humans that are able to do this and it gives us the possibility to find our way out of social dilemmas essentially so a social dilemma is any situation where it would be best if we could agree to cooperate but individuals face a individual temptation to defect and Mm. because individuals succumb to that temptation to defect we can end up in a really worst case scenario where everyone defects even though even though that's actually worse than if everyone could agree to cooperate so we end up Mm -hmm. in a what you know the kind of classic thing to think about is the tragedy of the commons and Mm -hmm. um institutions offer as a way out of situations like that and i think it's you know it's so much a fundamental part of the human cognitive toolkit that we even see it in young infants or children i should say really but there's there's some really um, great experiments involving children where um, the children are brought to the experiment and they they have a train set and they they have this incentive that they have to get their train to go around the track a certain way but then at some point the train has to go over a bridge and they can only only one train can go over the bridge in one direction um, at a time. And so one child's trying to send his train that, you know, from left to right, and then the other child's trying trying to send his train from right to left. And the question here is how do you resolve this kind of social dilemma where you both want to do something um, to maximize your own gains in the experiment? But there's a conflict because if you if the partner does if if the partner is kind of sending his train over the bridge, you can't send your train over the bridge. And children resolve this social dilemma using a very sort of intuitive rule, which is that they invent they invent in the context of the game turn taking. And so they in a situation like this kids will basically very quickly coalesce without any sort of input from the experimenter on the solution of okay well I'll go it'll be my turn this time and then it'll be your turn next time and then Mm. it'll be my turn again and then it'll be your turn again and that's a kind of really rudimentary kind of institution for solving Mm. what would otherwise be an intractable social dilemma that could only be solved through you know, force or fighting or where one individual would end up always winning the encounter and the other one would end up not really getting anything. Uh, and we just don't really see evidence in other species and, and or in the other great apes of this ability to invent these new rules and agree upon these new rules for how we think, you know, how we should solve mm. these kinds of dilemmas. And so... I think that's sort of a really nice example, but we see lots of obviously much more complex examples of institution design in societies, um, but that's just one sort of really easy one to, to get your head around. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, when I, the thing that, that, that really kind of uh, twists my brain when I think about it is just this human capacity to kind of buy into collective fictions. Uh, you know, I think about the law or the government like this. is; These are just kind of s- societal structures that we have just all bought into as being true because we have these like social malleable brains that are able to, you know, kind of I- understand rules and and intuit norms. And then you just participate in this society where everyone's kind of bought into this, you know, fiction of the Supreme Court or whatever, like these five people in robes like we are then able to kind of act on mass in a, in a coordinated way, according to kind of the dictates of of certain groups of people. Um, so it, it's amazing that that kind of this base level, you know, children playing games, uh, you know, this rule kind of creation can extend all the way up to kind of the you know the forces that that keep the society afloat.
1: Yeah, for sure, and and like you also see, you know, on that point about these collective fictions. I mean, money in a way, yeah, the use of money is what is like. A hugely helpful collective fiction that allows us to, you know, to to scale up trade and exchange, and and to to not only rely on trading things that can be that it can be used immediately, like food, but to kind of store uh, the 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 surpluses of trade in a in a form that doesn't decay over time. Money, but you also see that when this kind of this collective belief in in an institution like this or this collective agreement about this institution starts to fail then you see that things like you know the collapse of currencies or and things like that so i think Mm. it's in on the one hand it's like this is a huge human superpower but on the other hand it's you also kind of get this sense of like that these things can be fragile and they are subject to sort of stochastic forces and tipping tipping points and things
0: like that right in our last few minutes i'd love to speak about uh what the current pandemic covid-19 has taught us about cooperation um obviously you know we the, the reason pandemics can happen is because we are a species that likes being in close contact with each other and we fly all around the world and we want to be with people and we want to you know, be in physical contact, proximity with other people. And that's a great way for pathogens to spread. And so to reduce the spread, we have to kind of all uh, isolate in ways. But, you know, we have the internet, we have phones, we have means of cooperating in other ways. So I'm just curious if you have any uh, examples of, yeah, key lessons uh, that kind of, uh, I'm sure this pandemic happened as you were writing your book. And, you know, I don't know if you felt like some of your theses were kind of bolstered or supported uh, by the pandemic or from from an evolutionary perspective, what your kind of takeaways are from the last, you know, year and a half. I think
1: there's a few things. So I think one of the things that the pandemic has done has exposed the myth of the Western nuclear family, um, and in particular, it's done that because the way the only re, the only way that the Western nuclear family could function and we could manage to raise these offspring in the absence of help from any other family members, really, was because we 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 outsourced childcare to institutions like schools and, and nurseries, and you know some some of us are lucky enough to have help from grandparents and stuff and when those support networks are ripped away in the way that they were for so many parents during the pandemic it becomes really obvious that like we are a species that evolved to have help raising offspring and like doing it on your own is really is really something quite difficult and something which we're not I don't think uh evolutionarily prepared for so that's one sort of takeaway that I think has been Uh, interesting from an academic point of view although on a personal level I don't ever want to repeat the experience. Hmm. Um, I think another thing that the pandemic has shown us or should have shown us although it remains to be seen whether we learn the lesson or not is the extent to which we, we really are interdependent not just with people that we encounter in our everyday lives and our friends and family, but with people that we might never meet um, and that live in different countries. And the way that other individuals' lives, and in this case, their susceptibility to an infectious disease, can start to impinge on you and your life, I think is really stark. And I think um, we still haven't fully grappled with that or perhaps realised that when it comes to thinking about how vaccines ought to be distributed and whether, you know, nations that have vaccines ought to keep them for themselves or whether it is actually the right thing to do, not just for moral reasons, but for actually self-interested reasons to distribute these vaccines as widely as possible because we are interdependent in this situation and we're not out of this situation of the pandemic until we're all out of it and so I think that the that interdependence angle is also something quite interesting to think about. Um, the final thing that I the final lesson that I think we can take from this pandemic is this idea of thinking about what happens when we face a collective threat? And do we become more cooperative or do we become more self-interested? And I think that the answer to the question is um, actually a bit of both. So mm-hmm. I think what we saw in the wake of the pandemic and what we, um, what we saw in many different countries was um, a massive scaling up of hyper-local cooperation so what we what we saw in a lot of places was people um, forming mutual aid groups within their neighborhoods helping you know maybe talking to their neighbors for the first time helping people um, who live nearby and we saw there was lots and lots of really heartwarming examples of quite local cooperation but when we actually look more broadly at whether where did we just become sort of more cooperative overall I think the picture is actually much more mixed and I think when you look at broader scale cooperation what we actually saw is probably that dwindling to some extent or at least not not increasing so we saw people um, you know everyday people just panic buying pasta and toilet roll you know in some sense competing over these limited resources with people with other people that were also trying to get hold of them on when you look at um, competition between the states of the United States of America or even between nation states there was there wasn't really that much help that was being offered um, either in the early days or now with access to vaccines you know with things like ventilators and um, PPE it was much more the case that individuals were or individual these sort of larger scale entities were kind of keeping what they had for themselves and not necessarily offering those kind of vital resources more broadly to to others that needed them and so I think what the what we see in the wake of a pandemic is that you see this kind of hyper local cooperation that, but that doesn't really permeate out to broader, to broader levels of, of cooperation.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, once you start looking, I read I read another book, uh, Apollo's arrow by Nicholas Christakis, who, I mean, that's a book specifically about COVID, but it had a similar kind of, uh, angle where we can um, so many features of human social experience are just brought into stark relief by kind of the, this kind of extreme environment where people are forced to uh, lock down or uh, quarantine or be separated from loved ones or in some cases get closer to loved ones and and we kind of have to take stock of. Okay, what, what you know? What are we doing? We, we kind of have an anthropological view of our own, you know, goings on when it's all disrupted in that way, right? Making the familiar strange, I guess. Um, that is all the time. Unfortunately, that we have. I, I, I looked away and then I looked back at the clock. And we've been talking for an hour. Uh, incredible. So, but, 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 and yet we've barely scratched the surface. I would say. I mean, your book. Uh, has kind of, uh, four distinct parts. You, you talk about kind of peeling the onion layers. That's, I didn't explain that metaphor, right. But, uh, you know, from the individual to the family, to the society, um, and we, I, I think most of this conversation is kind of only focused on the latter half of the book, if, if, if that, uh, and so we have uh, barely scratched the surface. So for anyone listening to this, if the topics we've discussed today, uh, are of interest to, to you, I would highly recommend you pick up a copy of, uh, the social instinct um are, are there do you have any parting <laughs> parting thoughts or uh i'm curious what you're what you're what you are working on now or um if you are still looking into different kinds of of cooperation in your research
1: yeah we well yeah we're still i'm mainly working on punishment at the moment and also some papers on um reputation but it's been it's been a pretty tough year as far as research has gone because obviously having two young kids at home for a lot of it has stymied quite a bit of uh, the research that i've been doing but i'm thinking about another book but uh, only in sort of quite abstract terms at the moment i'm not quite sure if i'm ready to go there again yet but yeah i hope people enjoy the book and it's been a real pleasure talking to you
0: you as well uh the book is the social instinct by nicola rehani thank you so much for speaking with me today
1: thank you matthew